Hey guys, welcome to episode 19 of the Jayzilla podcast. I'm your host, Gino Manley, and tonight we got a fun interview for you guys. You know, last uh, last interview we talked about uh, our first racing experience as a team, Rick and I, and along with Scott. So for this episode, we decided to bring on a real-life professional racing car driver. It's a name most of you guys will recognize uh, locally, and his name is Mr. Andrew Pinkerton. I can almost guarantee you, you know him through social media. Um, he's based out of Birmingham, which is close enough to Atlanta for everyone to know him. He spends a lot of time at AMP and Road Atlanta uh, coaching and racing, uh, and just a really cool guy. I've known him for many years. Um, I actually raced with him in the 24 Hours of VIR, I guess it was six years ago, in my Mark II Golf Trump car. Uh, we actually finished that race, and it was a, a cool event, but that's how I got to know Pinky. Um, and just throughout the years, we've kind of seen each other in the garages and the paddocks as I'm playing around with race cars. He's always there um, making this a career. He's actually doing this. Um, he will be racing in a Global MX-5 race, Cup race this year. Um, he did a fill-in last year. So this is his dream. He wants to go racing professionally, and it's a really cool story. Um, I've, I've got to meet his family in the past, and uh, just comes from good people. And uh, really driven, and, and again, I think it's a, a little unique take on guys who want to make this a career, um, and for us track day guys to kind of hear about their stories and what we can learn from them, from the from somebody that wants to spend their, their entire time doing this, can we learn from them mechanically, um, etc. So, um, fun episode, and I hope you guys sit back and enjoy it. But before we get going, obviously, huge thank you to the folks at Valvoline. Uh, just today, I was doing an oil change on my X5, and thank you to them. Uh, they actually sent me European diesel oil, which is, like, really hard to find. So uh, thank you to the folks at Valvoline. The X5 safety car uh, has a fresh oil change, and it's ready for the season opener uh, in March for the death of winter. So we'll see everyone there. Also want to mention, uh, today we sent out a fun new format we're going to be doing for the Green Group drivers. So if you're a novice coming to the death of winter, uh, we're going to have a little bit of a different format. As opposed to having an instructor in your car, we will be focusing more on lead and follow. Um, and it's going to be a really good time, and uh, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But we will jump right in to episode 19, an interview with my friend and professional racing car driver, Mr. Andrew Pinkerton. The Jayzilla Podcast with Rick and Gino. Hey guys, welcome to episode 18. Of the, actually, this is 19. Welcome to episode 19 of the Jayzilla Podcast. I'm your host, Gino Manley, uh, here with uh, my co-host who just came off his first ever wheel to wheel race. Mr. Stengard, how are you up in Atlanta tonight? I'm doing great. I couldn't have had more fun doing some racing, and now we get to have a real racer on with us. That's right. So our guest tonight is a guy most of you guys will know. Um through either Facebook, he's actually instructed at one of our one or two of our events in the past. Um, but everyone's a mutual friend of him, um, so you probably know him from social media. You probably know him from seeing him at the track. But his name is Mr. Andrew Binkerton, uh, more more commonly as Pinky. Andrew, how are you tonight? Yeah, in Birmingham or yeah, yeah, I'm I'm back home in Birmingham doing doing some work here at Barber, and uh, I'm I'm happy to be dry and inside. It was a good day at the track, but uh, but wet and cold here. Awesome. Well, you know, I'm lucky to have known you for a couple of years. We actually raced together. Well, and we'll talk a little bit about um, some of our, our past before, but uh, you, you've kind of gone to become a full-blown uh, professional racing car driver these days. And um, for those people that don't really know you, give us a quick background, um, kind of how you got started, where you're at now, and, and kind of what you're aspiring to do. Yeah, so I mean, kind of the, the, the very long story, extremely short, um, started off like any, any kid at 12 years old wanting to go karting and race cars. And uh, about that time, the 2008 financial crisis hit. So like most people didn't really have the, uh, have the cash to go do it. So then I started iRacing. Um, I raced for a while and had a job in high school to save up some money, bought, bought a Formula V, uh, went SCCA club racing for a couple of years, then promptly ran out of money doing that. 
which is another common story. Um, and then went and started working on people's cars, wrenched on everything from stock cars to production-based race cars. Indy Lights cars actually crewed at the Indy 500 in 2014. Um, and then uh, in college, started working back out at the track and racing where I could. Um, and now full-time, make a living uh, as a driving instructor coach um, and then race professionally where I can, debuting an MX-5 Cup in 2018. Gotcha. So let's kind of go back a little bit and kind of pick that apart to some. So I know you probably, gosh, I think it has been four or five years ago now. Um, like everyone else, we were in, we ran, I guess it was Trump car back then. Yes. Um, but some good memories. You actually ran my golf, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Kyle and I, we had a golf. It was me, you, and at the time, one of your college friends, Evan. Um, we did the 24 hours of VIR. We actually finished that race. And you guys went on to have your own golf. Um, that we raced against. Uh, so some good memories back then. Uh, but, you know, again, so go dive in that a little bit. Um, as far as the amateur racing uh, side of things, what, what did you learn from that? I mean, how can that relate to, to what you're doing now? Uh, I guess just the whole spectrum. What, what amateur series um, taught you a lot? So, I mean, really, I, I learned a lot in SCCA club racing being first, um, but then I learned a ton in the chump car side of things. I know when, when it was still called chump car and, I actually raced in Chump Car in 2012 first, and then still, still, I, I raced in it uh, twice this past year. Um, but now that it's Champ Car Endurance Series, but people didn't take it too seriously at the time from the outside. But there were a lot of real teams running really competitive cars, and it was still real racing um, with a lot of cars. There was a lot to learn. Um, but I'll probably say that as far as the steepest part of the learning curve is probably in the SCCA club racing ranks and Formula V. Um, this, this may give some hope to people out there. I, I bought a race car at 15 years old um, and was going to be my own mechanic and drive it. And I knew so little about working on cars that it, it wasn't that I didn't know you should have a torque wrench. I didn't even know that the concept of one existed. Um, and I owned a race car and took it to a racetrack. Um, so that was, that was the early formative years from not knowing what a torque wrench was to actually turning a wrench on an indy car at the indianapolis motor speedway was four years wow gotcha so, yeah so the the you, you've had to come a long way for that so um talk to me a little bit about this so obviously mx5 cup uh you know global x5 cup you made your debut in um i, I guess i mean it's public now you're gonna be running uh, again this year at, at barber for race one um so what What's going on with your pro racing career today? Um, I want you to also talk about kind of your day job and, and what you're doing professionally these days um, in, in MX5. Yeah, so right now the plan is um, is MX5 Cup um, at at least Barber, doing spring training here in a couple weeks in March. Um, and I guess at this point it's still not public knowledge, but there may or may not be some updates coming to the MX5 Cup series um, in the ND2 class. So Right now, kind of things still in a little on the fence, just waiting to see what, what's going to happen there and, and making sure everything's ready to go for the spring training test. But as long as all, everything's greenlit there, then we should be at, I think it's March 16th. It's a Monday, one-day test here at Barber. Um, and then the first round of the championship this year for the MX-5 Cup uh, championship is at Barber Motorsports Park during the IndyCar weekend. Um, and so I'm right now, like I said, we're planning that it's going to be me driving the Pasin, um Hall Motorsports Development car. Uh, they're a Birmingham based team and, uh, doc who owns the team. Um, and I go way back. He actually sponsored the radio show, uh, which we all talked about off air earlier a little bit, but, uh, he was a sponsor of the show. Um, and so we, yeah, we, we have kind of a history and now it's come around where, um, we started working together again and I, I drove their car in a test back, I guess at the beginning of January during a track day, um, and made some really good progress. So. We're excited, um, hoping that everything pans out and that we got a strong package put together for Barber Motorsports Park. I mean, last time out when I debuted, it was a fill-in deal, so I had basically no testing in the dry. I'd never driven on that slick before, never driven those cars in the dry before, um, and uh, never raced in the series and had to go out and uh, with basically two practice sessions and go straight into a very competitive field. So, Andy, this is a really interesting spot. And having uh, just talked with a bunch of people that watched Uppity uh, on Netflix about Willie T. Ribs's career, it sounds like you're at that phase of a career where you, you're you ready to be a pro driver. You are doing some seats. But 
you have to deal with the idea that you either bring money or you pay money. Uh, it's not like you just step into a car and get paid to be a driver. Can you talk us through some of your, you know, maybe over the last since 2018, some of your growth in, in that respect? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, and I, I, I tend to kind of pride myself on being fairly blunt and open. Um, at this stage of my career, I'm kind of to the point where, I mean, yes, the, the moniker professional driver, I think, applies. Um, but I'm not making any money from driving race cars, if that makes sense. I, I make money from everything else associated with the title as far as coaching and working at racing schools and manufacturer programs where the credibility comes from driving the race car. Um, and that's what keeps my skills sharp. But right now, driving race cars does not equal a paycheck in hand at the end of the weekend. Um, but at the moment, a lot of the driving I've had, I mean, I've been fortunate in the past to have some sponsors, but recently it's, I mean, it's been tough to, tough to get people to pony up the kind of cash it takes to go professionally racing. So when I do drive cars, it tends to be a hit or miss scenario here and there where I can jump into a car and someone else is funding it or a team is allowing me to drive their car for a weekend. And that seems to be fairly common among the ranks uh, that you're running with really, really talented guys. Uh, where it, it now becomes more of about the business side of bringing cash to the table and sponsorship uh, than it is about actual driving skills sometimes. Yeah. Um, I mean, professional racing, I think internationally, especially on the sports car side, is in a really interesting spot. Um, interesting is a very nice way of putting it. Um, it it's homologation was supposed to make things cheaper. Um, it was supposed to level the playing field and it has leveled it, but it's also it's also leveled the, the barriers to entry as far as it's raised the cost for everybody um, to the same level. So everyone's spending the same, which makes it fair. But, um, but it does make it very difficult to be in a scenario where most teams don't even own their own cars these days. A lot of the, a lot of the teams that you see running in IMSA, the, the gentleman driver in the seat in that team tends to own the car um, just because that, that is the biggest asset dollar-wise that the team owns. Fascinating. So let me just jump in there a little bit, and, and I kind of want to talk about that a little bit more because I, I don't think a lot of people realize kind of that, that pro driver struggle, and, and I'm fortunate enough to kind of hang around the paddock, and, and so I know a lot of you guys that um, are going through this, um, and you can probably know you know your Atlanta crew um, is kind of the same way. But, I mean, you know, again, at what point, and I've been working with some younger drivers, just, uh, you know, again, kind of in, in WRL and AER and things like that, um, at what point do you think it, is is it an age thing that you kind of have to move on? Is it an experience thing? I mean, at what point does it? Uh, do you think you can call yourself a pro driver? Um, I think it's an experience thing. It's it's actually turning that wheel in a professional series and proving that you can stack up and and really, I think ever since I've kind of actually labeled myself a pro and other people have labeled me a pro, it's it's kind of I've gotten to that point where the the confidence is there and the skills are there to back it up where you know you can jump into almost anything and be competitive within a couple of laps. Um, that's really kind of the level it takes. I mean, if, if you're calling yourself, a, to be brutally honest, if you're calling yourself a pro and you jump in a car in a series that you should be competitive in with your experience level and you're not, uh, and, the, and it's, the, it's not the equipment's fault, then you kind of have to reassess whether they're a pro or not. Uh, yeah, perfect answer. I think that, that describes it to a T. Um, now, I want to kind of move on just a little bit here. So I, I know during your day job, I mean, there's a lot of guys that, you know, and you might agree, there's professional racing drivers and then there's professional drivers. Um, and so, you know, part of that goes into paying the bills. And so talk a little about your day job, uh, because I, I find it kind of fascinating, um, you know, what you get to do every day. Do you think it, it keeps you sharp, you know, on the racetrack, um, getting to play with some of those high end uh, cars in the programs? Yeah, it's it's not so much you don't stay sharp working at racing schools the way that most people would think. It's not the track time from lead follow driving um, and from hot lap demos at the end of programs, which they're fun. I mean, I love doing it. It's it's it is a lot of fun to do. But you always even when you're driving a fast lap at a racing school, you're always leaving a little bit of margin on the table because it's it is your day job. It's if, if you showed up to work and, and threw your computer off your desk and set a filing cabinet on fire, you'd get fired. Um, and that's basically, that, that's, that's the consequences of crashing or damaging a car at a racing school as an instructor, uh, or it should be. And if it's not, then you, 
it's probably a racing school you don't want to go to. Um, but so, so you don't really stay so sharp doing that. I mean, it's fun. It's a great way to show off um, the cars and, and a professional level ability, but it's actually the exercises, the stuff that students might look at when you first go through a racing school, whether it's Skip Barber or the AMG Academy or the Porsche track experience here that I work with. Um, those, those basic skills, the braking drills, the downshifting drills, skid pad, autocross, the, those are the places where really skid pad and, and some of the, some of the high-end car control drills that we do in advanced schools those get to keep you sharp because i mean when you go out on the racetrack and the opportunities i get where it's like i mean i know you all have raced in wrl and aer when when i show up to a wrl race with helmet in hand and i find a ride i normally don't get practice it's jump in go go fast you don't there's not a chance to play around um but when you go to the racing school and i'm warming up a car for the skid pad you get to go drift figure eights for 15 minutes in the morning um, occasionally or for five minutes or for two laps. And it's just, it's a way that doing that stuff really keeps your skills sharp and your makes you a lot more comfortable in the race car. Awesome. So let me kind of go to my next question here a little bit. Um, and, and you're the first professional driver we ever had, you know, kind of on this podcast. Most of it's our friends or our local guys we know. Um, so my question is this, and, and, and I like it because you'll answer, you know, pretty bluntly. What separates a guy, you know, a track day guy like myself or Rick from a professional racing car driver? Is it a, is it a bravery thing? Is it a skill thing? I mean, how, how would you phrase that? Um, that, that? That's, I mean, honestly, it is actually a tough thing to answer, even trying to be brutally honest. Because um, it, it, it's, it's going to vary person to person as far as what separates them. But if you wanted to break it down to two things, I would probably say it's seat time and discipline. Um would be kind of the two categories I'd put it into. It's you get a lot of guys and you all probably see this in your track day, track day fun where you see guys that are in the advanced run group. They have tons of seat time at a track. They come back track day after track day and they make the same mistakes every time they show up. Um, Or you drive one lap different from the next lap. It's the, the pros when, when you get in, you've, you've got to be conscious. And I, I always try to be conscious of this, whether it's concession carding with my friends for fun or actually a practice session or qualifying for a race weekend it is you treat all the procedures the right way whether it's warming tires hitting your hitting your marks every lap hitting your braking zones perfectly every lap working on your braking technique um it's just as you guys know it's it's all the little details that add up to a fast lap but all those little details end up being a lot of work over the course of a lap gotcha so as you do these schools and you work with a lot of what I'll call our advanced track day guys, or, or actually let's start with that question. As you do the racing school, the Porsche school, the AMG driving Academy, what's the level of experience? How would you rank them compared to our listeners, which are your general track day folks? So, I mean, it's, it's a wide, it's a really wide range. I mean, I've, I mean, last week I worked with everybody from people that had basically never been to a racetrack before to, the, the end of last week, a guy that races in SRO and GT3 cars, um, like you get that big of a spread, um, depending on the depending on the school and the clientele base. Um, but it's all the same skills at the end of the day. That's the one thing that I always talk about with coaching is that it's a car is a car is a car. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's front wheel drive, rear wheel drive, all wheel drive. It's a downforce car. It's a high horsepower car. It's a momentum car it's the same physics at the end of the day. It's the same skill set at the end of the day. It's just, how do you apply that skill set to the given car that you're in? Um, and sometimes even those guys that come in with the experience, you've got to break bad habits that they formed on their own. Or like I said, from discipline, it's, it's, they had the good skill set and they went and did it wrong for six months and now they've got a bad habit. And what are those most common bad habits? You know, if you were going to pick two or three that um, are probably applied to our group braking technique is number one i mean in any modern car it's the 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 brakes never really fade brake fades not really much of a thing these days since brakes are so good so it's proper braking technique it's that if you visualized it as drawing it on a graph it should be a nice triangle it should be a brake pressure spike almost straight up to your peak pressure that's going to be for that corner and then a completely linear release of the brake down to zero percent brake pressure as and and in in conjunction with your turning um because braking technique especially in a street car it, you notice it more on a racetrack if you jump off the brakes too soon the car understeers um in a race car 
you, you, you all can attest to this. You, you might be able to cheat it a little bit with good dampers. You crank a bunch of rebound into the front of the car. You slam on the brakes, dump off the brake pedal, and then some weight's still going to stay up there. Um, so I, I mean, braking's definitely number one. That, that's one of those things of whether you're driving on the street, driving on the simulator, or at the track day, braking technique is something that you can never get enough practice with. And let's underline that that doesn't mean late braking. No, no, I mean, it, it is. And when I say peak brake pressure, if, if, we're ta- I was, if we're talking about a scale of one to 10, you might hear coaches or instructors talk about a one pedal or a 10 pedal or a six pedal. So if you're talking about one being the softest, 10 being the hardest um, input, if it's a 10, if it's 10 pedal pressure for a corner, like say you're coming into turn six at Atlanta Motorsports Park, the hairpin, and you're slamming on the brakes and trying to slow the thing down to 35 miles an hour, it's a 10 immediately on the brake pedal. Um, and there, there might be some, there's some caveats there where if it's a car with factory ABS, maybe it's an eight and a half up to a 10. Uh, so you don't peak the ABS and get it to go into that high hard pedal or ice mode. But if it's a proper non-ABS setup or race car, it is straight to a 10 pedal. And then as you get ready to come through the braking zone, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one is returning in. Um, but it could be a corner like, I don't know, let's say like turn three at Road Atlanta. It might only be a four pedal on the brakes, but it should be a four initially. And then three, two, one, as you're coming off the pedal, it's never a four to zero or a eight to zero or a three, four, five, and then dump off to zero. If we're sequencing the pressure on the pedal. That's excellent. So, so proper braking technique is critical. Do you have a number two? Vision. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, you laugh about that. I mean, yeah, I'm sure everyone talks about it. Any instructor, if you, if you instruct, I'm sure you always talk to your novice students about looking where they want to go. Um, but I even see it with coaching kids in, in Formula Car Championships I've worked with, where they are very talented drivers. And I even work on it myself, where I'll go through a corner. Actually, for example, last last summer at Road Atlanta in the World Racing League event, I was driving with Ricky Sanders and crew, and um, I was in the NPO one, the little sports racer, the NASA prototype, and I went through the S's and went, I think I lifted out of it. Like we were a couple laps into the race, like I know it's flat, but I don't know why I lifted. And then I went through the next lap, and I was like, I, I did it again. And and then I caught myself, and I was staring off the nose of the car. I wasn't turning my head and looking all the way through the S's to turn five. Um, and so vision is crucial. I mean, if, if my biggest thing that I always encourage people to do, especially when you're wearing a closed face helmet, it limits your peripheral vision. Uh, if you're locking your head into the windshield, you're doing it wrong. Um, you're going to, che- you might be able to turn your eyes, but as soon as your natural instincts kick in, you're going to cheat your vision back to the nose of the car. So if you ever watch it, it's always great to look at photos of like pros and go-karts or in formula cars um, where their head's exposed you'll notice when they're going into a corner, their head is always turned before the steering wheel turns. Um, so that, that's the biggest thing is, is vision and force and turning your head forces yourself to look further into the corner because you take away a lot of the vision that you naturally want to look towards, which is the stuff that's intimidating you, whether it's the grass at your turn in point or the wall that's by the turn in point or the gravel trap, it's going to force you to look more to daylight and to where the track goes than what's right in front of you at the given moment. You know, and that's such an easy one for our our community to pay attention to. It's easy in concept, but incredibly hard in practice. And I laughed at the beginning because as a 10-year track guy, I had heard vision and, and keep your eyes up. But until I went through the training at Porsche Experience Center, I didn't understand what it meant. And then when I applied it, like last weekend at you know, AER, it's worth a couple of seconds. And it's just an unbelievable tool but it's very hard to do lap after lap. And not, it's hard to break bad habits. Yeah, not, not only is it worth a couple of seconds, it could be worth tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the scenario you're in on Because <laughs> um, it, it's one of those things when I teach car control at schools, um, people might have the skill set to actually get a drift going on the skid pad. But sustaining it and driving a figure eight completely sideways is all about where you're looking. It has nothing to do with necessarily seat of the pants feel. Because this, this, as long as you can feel something in the seat of your pants and you know what the car is doing underneath you, that's great. But y- your ass can't see where the car is going. Um, only your eyes can. And, it, and so if you, you have to take all that information in, but the, the leading data point is your vision. So if you've got bad data at the beginning, you've got bad data out. Um, it's, it's that simple of an equation. That, that's, that's really breaking it down. But it is the hardest part is breaking that natural biological instinct to look at what threatens you. 
Um, and it just, it takes practice and it takes conscious practice of doing it. That's awesome. And this is to plug Jay Zilla for just a second. This is why we're making the effort to change up our curriculum and to add the autocross and the skid pad and other things when we go to road Atlanta and Barber this season is we've got a lot of drivers that have been here, been with us for years and years and don't have the opportunity to practice these things in a low speed environment or a skid pad. I mean, there's just not a lot of places you get to do that. Yeah. But, uh, as you pointed awesome. out, I didn't realize you guys were yeah. doing that. That's, that's really cool. Um, Cause that's, yeah, no, I mean, that's the great thing about an autocross and a skid pad is I'm not going to say there are no consequences, but it is a low consequence environment. Absolutely. I don't, I don't know about that. I, I kind of almost went off on the barber skid pad and we almost had to tell myself out of the trees, but I said low consequence, not no consequence. <laughs> James, if you're listening, that never happened. Me and Rick didn't have to winch my X5 out of the trees at Barber almost. But um, so Pinky, real cool. Let's go back to this because I, I'm kind of fascinated by this and I hope you don't mind talking about it. So um, a lot of guys like yourself um, offer coaching to, let's say a guy like me, I go to a track day event at Barber. I can actually, um, I, I assume I could with you. I could pay you a fee and you would write seat with me, maybe review my data and things like that. Um, so talk about that a little bit about, about, you know, private coaching and things like that. And I know you do it um, because I always see you at tracks. So I'm assuming that's what you're doing. Um, but, you know, private coaching, I mean, is that, a, is that a big aspect of, you know, part of your career now? I mean, I, it, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So private coaching is definitely kind of the, most racing schools don't operate on the weekends um, since that's when track days and club racing events are going on and professional race weekends are. So that's open days to try to go make some more money um, as far as a job. Cause I mean, racing schools are great, but it's not, it's, it is not a regular job in the sense of a schedule. It's not nine to five, five days a week, um, four, four weeks out of every month. It, it might be that like right now I'm on a basically like 14 day run in a row. And then March, I might be like, I think the whole first week I've got nothing going on. Um, so weekends are kind of a way to plug in and average your year out to being a regular working year. Um, and definitely private coaching is one of the ways to do it. Um, one thing with private coaching, I know, I know some guys write seat. Um, I personally do not. Um, it's, it's a personal policy of mine, but it's also a policy of the places that I work. Um, like the Porsche track experience, there's no on-track right seating. Um, instructors with students and with the instructor in the right seat, um, just because the the risk is so great these days. And I mean, I'm sure you all can attest to it as you've gotten to drive more and more cars, the more modern the car gets. Um, and by more modern, I really mean anything made in the past 10 years, uh, along with a modern tire, the corner speeds are so incredibly high and the performance threshold so incredibly high that it doesn't take a very, doesn't take a very big mistake to turn into a near fatal crash. Um, and, and that's, that's one thing or not, not so much fatal, but just something that could injure you. And I mean, it, as you guys know, for driving, it, it's really tough to get in a race car and drive. If you've got a broken leg or a broken wrist, or in my case, I know this, a broken back. I mean, it's not to get too caught up in the weeds and doom and gloom on, on potential worst case scenarios, but it's, it's a risk that I don't think is necessarily necessary anymore. Um, we've got the tools that you can coach from outside of the car. If someone's a proficient enough driver to really warrant getting a professional coach to come in and do private coaching. Um, but go ahead. So, yeah. So, I mean, so, and just talk about, I mean, and uh, Rick, I know you're going to, I know you're going to want to jump in here in a second. I know why, but um, talk about that. So like a guy like me, I go to Atlanta. Uh, how, how would that work? You would, you would radio coach, data coach. Is that what you're saying? Nowadays? So, so yeah. So, so, yeah, typically, I mean, most of the time, most of my private coaching is done with race cars. Um, so it's data, video, and um, and then if you've got if the person has radios, I'll typically get uh, get on a radio and try to do something corner by corner, um, or just like with, with for instance with with formula car stuff I've done. You know, let's say go out to a corner in the race, but it's just during race laps being the per being the person on the radio like we hear in an f1 race the the chief engineer reminding the driver of hey move your brake bias now after the start this guy's closing on you here's your interval just being that voice of reason and, and kind of trying to calm the driver down and keep them focused is a big part of it um, but definitely data and video is kind of the bread and butter of it um, but honestly i think it's it's one of those things of if you don't have 
I mean, it, it's like any sort of educational structure. If you don't have the 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 base prerequisites kind of done, um, it's probably not going to be worth your money and time to hire a coach just yet um, at that sort of level. If you um, there's definitely big leaps and bounds that you can make, um, but it's one of those things of make sure you're kind of comfortable enough where you, you know, you, you can kind of self-assess some of the stuff they're telling you to even apply it on track. So that's a great place to jump in here. And Gino, uh, Gino doesn't need any help on the track. I need the help on the track. So you can help me. And uh, we, as we looked at data ourselves and did a little bit of data coaching around the AER race, we were able to, Scott and I were able to find significant time uh, Gino, you know, was closer to his limit. Uh, but as as you as a track day guy and many of our listeners, how do you self-assess and decide that I'm really ready for something beyond looking at my own AM data? It's it's one of those things of whether it's just looking at data. But it, my thing is, it's more of when you're on track. It's when you go through a corner and go, man, I messed that up. And you know what you did. Okay, but, but you keep doing it is the other thing. Or or you go through a corner. It could also be you go through one corner and you're able to go, okay, I messed it up. Or you pick up on a mistake you're making. Um, or you go through another corner and you have no idea what, what happened. Mm. But you're like, I'm just slow here. Like turn nine at Barber, the museum corner. I have no idea why everyone's running away from me through here. And it's just, it could be taking a step back and having someone else to give you that second opinion and go through the data step by step and the video step by step. Um or it could be, I mean, especially as you build your track car more and more, or build your race car more and more, it could be the other thing that I do as a coach is do data laps. You'll go out and at the start of a session or at the end of a session, go out and rip off five or six laps and set that baseline data point and also give some feedback on the car um, and kind of how to drive that specific car. Because, I mean, it's one of those things of each car is going to be a little bit different. Um, if the setup's different, then maybe I, I'm telling you to do one thing, but it's not necessarily the right thing to do with the way the car is handling. Got it. So that baseline also lets the, the student know that this is something the car is capable of and gives them a uh, aspirational lap. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it gives you that goal of this is a, whether it's, I mean, this is, this is the lap the car is capable of. Um, most of the time it's depending on the level of the student, you might not necessarily as a coach go out and set an absolute 10 tenths qualifying lap. Um, just because you might be trying to work incrementally up. Um, you don't want to set the bar too far ahead, um, and have something go wrong by trying to push too hard too soon. Um, so I mean, there's, there's a lot of considerations with that and, uh, it's, but yeah, it definitely, it, it's one of those things I was a coach that's kind of weird is I, I joke with the, especially working with younger race car drivers is. You're kind of a uh, you're you're kind of a babysitter, a sports psychologist, and a racing coach um, <laughs> because you're trying to hurt them the whole time and then keep their ego in check, but also keep their confidence up enough that they can do what they know they can do, um, and then also go through and analyze everything and keep them corner by corner doing what they need to be doing. Um, so there, there's a lot of considerations of that, and it go it varies widely, driver by driver, experience level by experience level. It, a lot of this comes down to your ability to be an educator, too. Have you studied up, you know, beyond racecraft, beyond data, beyond all these other things? Have you studied up on, you know, learning and educational techniques? Um, not so much specifically, like, teaching techniques. I mean, a, lo a lot of it comes down to working at, like I said, working at racing schools, working on ride-and-drive programs, working on, I did a bunch of teen driving schools in the past where, you're in a car with somebody or you're working with somebody one-on-one -on, -one on an exercise and they're just not getting it with the way you're saying it. And then, you know, you've got to say it differently for them to understand it. And you end up getting this kind of this, this depth of knowledge where you can say the same thing 10 or 12 different ways. Um, so somebody can understand it no matter who they are. Um, so that, that comes with more, I think, experience than necessarily trying to sit down and study it analytically. Um, there's definitely room for that. Um, I think most of that studying I've had though has been actually on going back to the sponsorship side of things, it's come more on the, on the pitch presentation side of things of analyzing like behavioral psychology and, and how people perceive things when you're presenting them with information and, and ideas, uh, more so than straight up teaching techniques. Neat. Now I'm going to, I'm going to jump in there real quick, uh, Andrew, because, uh, 
give you an idea, and you mentioned out-of-the-car coaching. Um, you've done a bunch of riding drives. and in, in my professional career, I've, I've gotten the experience a lot of those. And so our, our, with our group, um, we have a novice group. And this year, we actually sent the email today, go figure. Um, we're going to start with our, with our novice green group doing lead and follows. Um, we're taking instructors out of the cars, basically. And we're going to have a mother goose, you know, again, one instructor car three or four student cars behind him just to kind of get pace going. So what's your experience with that, uh, with riding drives and with your, you know, and instruction, how do you find out of the car coach different as opposed to the traditional, have a coach in the right seat? It's, um, there, there's a couple of different things that apply to it. I mean, from, from an instructor standpoint, it's, it's a totally different teaching and driving style because you've got to have instructors that are comfortable enough at, around a track at any sort of speed that you're actually looking at your rear view mirrors more so than you're looking out the windshield. Um, so there, there's that new aspect for an instructor, but from a student's perspective, it, it does kind of hang them out there on their own a little more so initially. Um, but it means they're having to learn on their own uh, with help and guidance from an instructor, setting the pace and giving some notes and a way to follow them around corner by corner. Um, but th that way you don't end up, relying on your right seat instructor as a crutch because it's and i'm sure i, I know i have right seated in the past i'm sure you guys have right seated too um where you get in the right seat with somebody and you're like i don't really know if this guy knows what he's doing in this corner and you start giving instructions at a rate and a cadence and kind of a a level of intensity where you are driving the car from the right seat yes the person the driver that your your student that you're instructing is physically making the inputs, but they would not be making those inputs unless you were telling them step-by-step step how to do them. Um, and so by being in a lead follow environment, you can remind them and, and coach them up on how to make those inputs. But at, at certain points, you're not going to be there every time to go, brake, you need to turn here, release the brakes softer, slower to throttle. They're going to be able to make some mistakes in a, in a lower threshold speed environment um, where they're going to, I think, actually have a better learning learning progression and a, and a and a faster learning curve gotcha all right well i'm gonna jump into some uh, kind of change gears a little bit so you know in the past in the race with you I mean, it's been a couple of years but um you know I, i've gotten to meet your family at, at a couple of races so talk about that um you know again you you don't have that traditional and you're still a relatively young guy um you know you don't have that traditional career path of, you know, going to college and, you know, going and being a doctor or something like that. You want to be a race car driver. So talk about that a little bit. I know they support you like crazy, but, uh, you know, talk about at home, them chasing your dream and, and how they, how they support you. Yeah. I mean, at first, obviously in, in high school, they were hugely supportive of it. Um, gr grades were, a, were a part of that, even though the grades never lived up to what they wanted, but they were still supportive of it. Um, a lot of friction, friction with that sometimes, but they, they were, I mean, obviously from a time perspective, hugely supportive and helped out. I mean, always at the track with me when, when we were starting off, my dad was my mechanic, basically, who was a mortgage broker, uh, had never really turned a wrench on a car um, and helped me a ton. Um, and my mom was always there to help out with whatever needed to be done. My little brother's been there a lot. Um, and then obviously they, they helped financially where they could in those early days. Um, and then up and up to college, it was kind of, probably like most people my age, parents are going, Hey, you're, you're going to college. You're going to go get a four-year degree because it's, it's very commonplace these days. And kind of the, I guess for lack of a better expression, the expected path, especially kind of in the, in the neighborhood and, and school system I grew up in. Um, and I went, I did go to college. That's actually, that's where I met Evan, who we, we talked about earlier that I raced, we raced chump car, now champ car with. Um, so I went to college for a couple of years and then made it, probably about a year and a half in and then started going full into racing going, I really don't want to be here. I was in class going, well, in class going over strategy notes and in class going over data and video. And you're like not paying attention to anything. Um, and so eventually I did, I did leave college. I was at UAB and about three years into a degree and up and left to go full time into instructing and, and driving. Um, and it's, it has worked out. Um, it's, it's been, it's been quite a road to get there. It was a, it was a lot of work to get there. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my family has been hugely supportive of it. It took, it took some convincing to get them to buy in initially to buy into the, Hey, I'm, I'm not going to finish this degree out because this is what I actually enjoy doing more. <laughs> um, I'm going to enjoy doing this more. And, uh, actually funnily enough, it's, 
the, the since I wasn't enjoying college, the the major path I had gone on was going to put me in a probably in a career that was going to pay significantly less than being a driving instructor, which isn't I'm not sound like I'm making enough money to have a Ferrari, but making enough to live um, and have a good job and have something that you enjoy doing. That's, that's the important part of it. Um, so yeah, now now they're 100% behind it. Now they actually could see that, hey, this wasn't just me complaining that I didn't want to do my homework and go to class and go play with race cars instead. It was like, hey, this is actually a legitimate career path, um, as legitimate as you can call racing. But uh, yeah, no, they've been... Um, They've been hugely supportive and, and still are. Um, probably my mom has read more sponsor pitches than anyone should ever be subjected to for proofreading. Um, none of which have worked out, but she's always there to, to, to run run an idea past, and it's been great. And like I said, my dad was has always been there supporting everything. Uh, now, actually, unfortunately for my parents, I've gotten my little brother into racing. He's now got a go-kart um, and raced over at Atlanta Motorsports Park a couple times in the LO206 class. Well, you know, I, I want to jump in there because I think it's kind of a cool thing. So, you know, unlike a lot of young kids that, you know, are in karting these days or, or, or coming up through the ranks where parents are driving them through it, you're kind of doing this on your own with their support. Um, but talk a little bit about, and, and I, you always make the joke that being a professional driver is, you know, a bunch of numbers and spreadsheets and phone calls. Um, talk about that a little bit, the marketing, you know, aspect of it. How does a guy like you get yourself out there in front of sponsors? And like you said, even the struggle, you know, is real. And, and you've been in, in this for, you know, 10 plus years. Talk about just how drivers market themselves. If you're a young guy coming up through the ranks, I mean, what, what's, what's your, what's your advice in that aspect? Um, well, my, I don't know how, how valuable my advice is on that since, I mean, I, I do a lot of it, but um, like, like we talked about earlier, not, not a whole lot of sponsors these days. It's, um, I don't know if it's a result of something I'm doing or if it's a result of market factors or a little bit of both where it's just that racing budgets are ever increasing these days. And, um, and then it's, it's tough to compete at a, at a small scale being a, a driver on your own or with a small team against something like a, a NASCAR or an IndyCar where they have a, a big stage and they also have big marketing departments that are actually able to, to analyze and, and give analytics on every piece of marketing deliverables they, they they dish out where they can actually quantify the value um so a lot of it really at this level is trying to find people that like the idea of racing um and then you're trying to find some sort of way to justify the business expenditure for them so it's whether it's a business to business deal which you probably hear that people hear that term tossed around a lot in racing and it's it's trying to basically work some sort of wheeler dealer deal where it's hey i've got X retailer um, that I know someone there and I've got a vendor here that I'm friends with and they're trying to get in with this retailer and you go, Hey, the vendor is going to pay for the race car. And then you go to the retailer and go, Hey, if you put uh, if you put my vendors stuff in your stores for free for a trial run and give us some shelf space, then uh, we'll put you on the race car for this event. And you're trying to work, work deals like that nonstop. I mean, it's, it's always something like that. And yeah, it's constantly running Excel spreadsheets, trying to figure out budgets and trying to figure out where you can cut stuff out of it, which is tough these days with everything being spec and homologated. Um, and then you get really good at PowerPoint, Illustrator, Photoshop. I mean, kind of a one-man band, graphic artist and writer and then and, and doing your own pitches. So the toughest thing though is networking. It's trying to, trying to get yourself out there and, and knowing the right people to get you in touch with somebody that can actually make a decision. Awesome. Well, I'm going to jump into some fun stuff in a minute, but uh, Rick tells me you're really good at iRacing. So Rick, why don't you tell your story about that and, um, and how you know this? Man, so we had a good thing going. We had the Atlanta iRacing group on, uh, probably started on Facebook, but we had, you know, probably eight or 10 guys that were all track day enthusiasts maybe yellow group, maybe a little bit of red group. And we thought we were pretty hot stuff on iRacing. We'd run some hero laps and uh, we got together every Monday night after work and we'd all hop in the simulator and talk some smack. And then one day, a couple of people, including Mr. Pinkerton, stepped in and rained on our parade. And it was the best thing that ever happened to us uh, because all of a sudden, a couple of these guys, uh, let's see, I think Flip was part of this and, and, you know, correct me if there's somebody else, but there were a couple of guys that really knew how to drive real cars and it translated to the simulator and they showed up and they, not only did they know how to drive, but they knew how to set up cars 
And they came in and absolutely annihilated lap times. And then when it got to racecraft, which we don't really practice in a track day, uh, they knew how to, to find an opening and, and push that opening. Uh, so it was really, really enlightening to start running with, uh, I'll call it a professional driver. And I'm sure there's another side to this. Yeah, no, actually, I think it was it was Flip that drag, that drug me into that because we were we were working together at that time uh, over at Atlanta Motorsports Park on the on the team driving school, which now what is it called now? Drive Strong, I think is what they've rebranded it as, um, and it's still going on over there, which is a great program. But yeah, so Flip Flip drug me was like, hey, he's like, we, we're i racing every Monday night. I was like, okay, cool, I'll hop in, and um, I mean, i racing's fun. I, I I don't do it as much as I used to, um, just because. Like I said, today I spent almost 12 hours at, at a racetrack for work, which is great. It's a great problem to have, but it's like by the time you get home, it's like, okay, I'm going to do laundry, check some emails, eat dinner and go to bed. Um, and there's no time for iRacing, but iRacing is actually what I started on. So we were talking about go-karts and um, parents dra- dragging their kids through karting and try to get them up up the racing ladder. I, I mean, growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, there's not a go-kart track anywhere near here. I mean, when I, when I was a, of a karting age, um, Atlanta Motorsports Park didn't exist. So that was that's not the nearest go kart like proper go kart track to Birmingham. So there was no karting, and I got into video games. I mean, like any kid, played Forza Motorsports all the time, um, and then took that a little bit into like the Formula One games when those first came out, um, and getting serious with that. And I was like, okay, I'm kind of good with this. And then someone introduced me to iRacing, and um, I picked up a wheel and pedal set and a computer and started started on there, and. Um, Probably obsessive would be the word when I was in high school, when it came to iRacing. I think before I ever actually went to my SCCA racing school, I had almost 500 official race starts on iRacing. Um, and just, yeah, laps in the simulator. And it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a great way, talking about racecraft, you don't get to practice that at track days. I think iRacing's more of a tool for learning racecraft than it really is a tool for learning how to drive. Um because you can practice racecraft on there with pretty much zero consequence to your to your wallet. Gotcha. Well, all right. So real quick, uh, I want to move on to some more fun questions here. But uh, two things here. Um, and, and it's kind of a, a dark one, but I mean, worst case, I'll go up and down actually. So let's say worst case scenario, you know, you just don't really get the drive you're looking for in a couple of years. Uh, and I guess you, you know, is your your career path always going to be a motorsport? Basically, do you always want to be at the track, or is it you got to go pro, or you're not going to be happy? Uh, funnily enough, I was having that conversation today. Um, it's that's always kind of a moving target. Uh, I think it depends on how long you've gone without a drive, uh, and how frustrated you get is, is the harsh reality of that. Um, I definitely love being at the racetrack, though. That's that's the one thing. Whenever you get back to the track and actually get to drive, you go, okay. This is this is why I did that two years that sucked of not really driving anything to get back to here. Um, so I think there, well, motorsports will always have a place career-wise for me now, um, whether it's coaching or, I mean, kind of worst-case scenario, I guess, for me, I could always go back to being a race mechanic and go go wrench on somebody's cars on, on race weekends, um, which is still a lot of fun, and you're still involved. But that comp- I think I've kind of found that, that competitive nature of, of doing something like that is tough to replace. Um, but definitely driving is the end goal. That's, that's always been the end goal, um, to get there and, and go after whatever I can. Um, there's some other stuff that I'm working on in the background, um, that is way outside of racing that whenever racing does slow down or my schedule slows down, I try to work on that as kind of a fallback plan and a way to, if it ever, if any of the wild ideas ever work out that, then I don't have to worry about sponsors and it's just, Hey, I'll be that. I'll be that idiot guy with the race team doing stupid things and hiring all these drivers just to go win. Um, that would be, that's, that is the best case, worst case scenario, uh, would be in, be in a position to actually just start up a team and go drive on my own. But, um, that, I think that's definitely the, the goals to be a driver. Um, and I mean, you look at guys though, like Bill Oberlin's still competitive and driving in his fifties. Um, you see plenty of guys that, it took them until they were in their thirties to actually get a stable professional drive. Um, and then, I mean, there's also, it, there's, there's the possibility that it never pans out. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those tough things, but I, I don't think I could live myself if it didn't try for at least the next 10 years. And just to kind of jump on that. So my next question I had in my notes was, um, all right, you know, best case scenario, I mean, call your shot here. Where, where are we going to see you in, in, in a couple of years? Are, are you, are you going for a sports car like IMSA? 
do you want to get back in the open wheel? Where, where will we see you if the plan works out here in a couple of years? Um, well, well, logically, the, the best case scenario plan is definitely sports cars. I mean, I, I'd love to be in something at this point. It'd probably be GT based. Um, GT3 um, in IMSA would be great. I mean, I'd love to go be at the Rolex 24 um, or the 12 hours of Sebring. But honestly, I mean, if I'm making a living primarily from driving, which is almost unheard of these days, that would be awesome no matter what I'm driving, whether it's Trans Am or, I mean, heck, if it's WL or AR, depending on how things are going with that, um, I just, I want to be in a race car. And if that, if that's all, if I can race 30 weekends a year and that's what I get paid to do, then that's, I'd be over the moon over that. Um, it'd be great to be at the 20, at those big events, but, and then also, I mean, the, the really lofty goal for me is like the people that I idolized growing, like growing up by racing heroes or like, the AJ Foyts and Dan Gurney types of the world where they did of that area that they did, did a little bit of everything. Um, so, I mean, it would be, it'd be really cool to go do an Indy 500 or even just the freedom 100 and an Indy lights the on car day. Um, and then potentially prototypes after that. I mean, that that's, you know, it always, it's always fun to be in the fastest class in a multi-class race. Um, but you definitely see these days with those DPI drivers, there's not a lot of guys that started in GTs that end up in those. It's a lot, a lot of guys coming out of formula cars. All right. Well, I'll move on to some more fun questions here as we kind of wrap up here. Um, and, you know, so you're, you're known to do a bunch of charity carding events, things like that. Um, so let's say let's say Gino uh, hits it big and I'm going to provide you with a with a GT car. Who would your co-driver be? Who just one? Just just one, you know, local guy that, that you can't pick somebody on the circuit or you pick like a local guy, like a like somebody you cart with uh, that, you know, a lesser known guy. Oh, man, you're going to make me. How many people listen to this? Like You'd three, be uh, yeah, <laughs> million or just three? The three people right now. Well, does my Valvoline twice count? Yeah, if if the Valvoline people at home are listening, it's about three million. Okay. So. I was about to say. Well, <laughs> ho- hopefully, hopefully it's not because you're gonna make, make somebody mad with this answer if I if I don't name the, the right person if they're listening. Oh, we're not gonna make them mad. You're gonna I, make them mad. That's what makes this fun. Yeah, I'm. I'm yeah, sorry. This is weird being on the other end of this interview. Um. So. Um. Yeah. I. I think it'd actually be pretty cool. I mean, the the history of Birmingham and Alabama, the the old Alabama gang, the Allisons out of Hueytown. Cool to see two Alabama-based drivers in a GT car that's competitive. So I'd probably have to go with my buddy here in town locally, Brian Leonard, um, who he's done some WRL stuff. Um, I don't know if he's running AER, but um, runs around. He's a. I, I kind of have to go with him. I mean, he he can drive, but he's also an old school old school driver in the sense that. He can fabricate, he can engineer, he can wrench. Um, he runs his own race shop. Um, so I, I think I'd have to, if, if I was just gunning for something out of the gate, I'd have to pick Brian. All right, I tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll be easy on you. Unless I also give you a, a ride in the Rolex 24, who would your two other Enduro drivers be? And if they're not, so I, I, my buddy Robbie I would normally go with, but he's already got a ride, so I'm not going to give him one. He's already got a yeah, ride, yeah, you so, can't pick him. Um, <laughs> I'd probably have to get, I'd have to get Patrick Wilmot in a seat. Of course. Um, ooh, and then a fourth one. That'd be tough. Actually, you know, I would I would really like to see Gino knows Evan, my buddy Evan Maynard from from college that we raced the, the Waffle House car together in Chump Car. Evan's a damn good driver, and I don't think he gives himself enough credit. Um, I think he could actually, with a little bit of testing, he could he could really clean up in a in a quick car. Yeah, see, but I think Evan these days would rather be the engineer on the car. Um, you say that, but I'm, but I'm sure if I gave him a helmet, put him in a, in a seat, he wouldn't complain. Well, you know, just seeing, you know, I've waited six years to start a podcast to remind everyone that my Mark T. Golf beat your beautiful Mark T. Golf it, it at did. Red Atlanta it and did. at Sebring. So. <laughs> you, you did do that. So, somehow, and I, I still cannot figure this out to this day, somehow you're wire-nutted together. 10 year older Volkswagen golf <laughs> managed to be our fairly professionally prepared Mark three. Um, honestly, I think we, honestly, we drove it too hard looking back on it. Cause we kept burning through wheel bearings. If we would have just slowed down, we would have been fine. Well, you know, I'll tell you one of my greatest memories in racing was, is that road Atlanta, you guys brought your golf, uh, you know, hometown home track advantage. And I remember Evan looks at me and says, when are you guys in the pit? Because you guys really didn't have an idea of fuel mileage on your car. And I, I completely lied. I told him like an hour and 10 minutes and two hours later, you guys still see us out there. And by then you guys figured out, 
I completely lied about the fuel strategy, you guys. <laughs> yeah, but, we, we, um, yeah, we were ha- we had no idea for those conditions. So <laughs> that was probably one of my most proud races. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, nevertheless, as we kind of close on here, I know uh, you know we appreciate you giving us your time. So I want to close with some fun stuff here. Um, you have driven a ton of cars. You get to drive a new Porsches. Um, if you, fo- I follow you on Instagram, you're like behind the wheel of a new Mercedes every single day. Um, what is your uh, favorite cars that you've driven? Um, and then maybe what is your favorite race car of all time you've driven? Oof, that's tough. Um, so I guess we'll start most recently. Some of the cars I've gotten to play around with the new Porsche 992, the new Carrera, the new generation Carrera or 911 is phenomenal. It's just it's one of those things that if, if you're a Porsche person or you've been in a couple different generations of Porsches, they somehow make it better every time, even though every time you get in a new one, you go, they can't possibly make it better. And they've made this new 992 better. Um, and it's faster and it's, it feels like a race car that's somehow also comfortable on the road, which I can't wrap my head around. Um, we, we've already found that it's basically the current S around Barber is as fast as the previous generation GTS, which is just insane. Um, and then I think this is going to be kind of out of left field, but the Mercedes stuff I, that I get to play around with is kind of some dealer training stuff. And the current, the brand new GLE 450 has got this uh, thing called e-active body control on it. So it's actually got active suspension in an SUV. Um, and it's really cool. I mean, it's just from a tech standpoint, being a racing nerd and a tech nerd, where it's just like the fact that this car can actually scan the road and see a pothole and then adjust the damping on each corner and actually pick wheels up independently of one another where you don't feel it is just bizarre um, and witchcraft. But it's, it's actually pretty cool for that being in a mass-produced road car. It's actually made here in Alabama. Um, other cars that I get to drive, the, the, the uh, these are going to go back and forth because I get to drive a lot of Porsches and Mercedes. The Panamera uh, SE, Turbo SE Hybrid. Um, it's a plug-in hybrid from Porsche that is got 677 horsepower and it'll in the rain it'll spin the wheels through up to third gear on a launch which is pretty cool in a family sedan um and then race car wise ooh, driven a lot of race cars as far as like outright best cars probably the radical sr3 is just a really good all-around race car and track car um but um i really the waffle house car is probably just one of the most fun memories i've got of racing because it was just a bunch of buddies in a car that was we were kind of guessing with almost every time we took it out. Um, and it was just a fun front-wheel drive car to drive because it was we, we always had the rear really stiff. I remember at, at the, the kink at Barber, the S is on the back straight. Um, at the Barber race, you would turn left to turn in for the left-hander. And then for 11, for the right, you actually wouldn't turn the wheel back right. You'd just straighten your hands. And just that weight transfer was enough to rotate it right. It was so stiff. Um, and that was a lot of fun. Um, and then spec me out as any spec me out. It's always tough to go wrong with that. What's your favorite track? Ooh, can I give you a top three or do I have to pick one? Uh, I'll take the top three. I'm sure Barber's on it, but what's your top three? I'm going to go Barber, Road Atlanta, VIR. Top three, no particular order. I, Cause I can't rank those three. <laughs> and what is your favorite series you've run in? Ooh. What's the criteria for favorite, or do I have to pick that? You, if I, you were only allowed the race of this series for the rest of your life. Ooh, that's tough. Of the ones I've raced, and I'm only allowed to race in that one for the rest of, of my life. Of the ones you've raced, yep. Uh, as far as just being a racer and just wanting cutthroat competition, I, I can't go away from MX5 Cup. Uh, the Global MX5 Cup series is just, I thought Spec Me Auto Racers were crazy in SCCA. Um, and then that series takes it to a whole new level. I remember my first race there, we were like six wide coming out of turn one at Barber. And for any of you that have been to Barber, which I'm sure most of you have been, you know that you can barely fit three and a half cars across the across the exit of turn one. Um, it's just, yeah, cutthroat competition. The cars are, I know Mazda likes to tell that they're all completely equal, but they are relatively equal. Because it, it, even though they're the same car and they roll out of the factory, each, each team can polish them a different way um so the car is relatively equal and it's there's no downforce which i really like i think that's one problem with modern racing is too much downforce all mechanical grip makes the racing awesome all right here's a fun one so let's say i go to any given track um who's your crew who are the guys you're always around like uh, if you had to pick a handful of guys i mean who who would we find andrew with on any given weekend Ooh, i guess i guess it depends on the 
depends on the track I'm going to. I mean, it's, I kind of, it's, it's strange, but I tend to have a crew if I'm there with a, with a team, but. Well, let's say, let's say you got the pick. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of guys I've really enjoyed working with. Uh, if I had to like assemble a team to go work with, it'd probably be, um, my buddy and guy that I work with and he's the team, ma- team owner and manager at uh, VRD and the F4, F3 side, probably Dan Mitchell. He's just like crazy engineer and mechanic and he can also drive. Um, and then I'd actually probably bring in Robbie Foley. Um, cause he, he knows what he's doing behind the laptop too, as well as behind the wheel. Uh, and he can wrench. That's one thing that I don't think anyone gives him credit for in IMSA. He could probably work on the car if he wanted to, um, Around the racetrack, um, I don't know. I mean, at Barber, I'm always hanging out with the corner workers whenever I'm looking for a ride because they're the only ones that will talk to me, and they're great. Um, <laughs> most team owners walk the other way. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, it's weird. I mean, I guess you guys know this when you're at the track. It's You have conversations with probably 70 people a day that you can't remember their name because you, you talk to them every time you go to the track and you know what car they drive, but you can't for the life of you remember their name. So there's probably a handful of people on that list that I could tell you what they drive if I saw the car, but I, and I could tell you what they looked like in the last conversation we had, but can't, that's one thing I'm bad about is I can't remember people's names. I know that's going to make me sound like a horrible person. And I'm putting this out there on the internet for the rest of eternity. Um, but I will listen intently to what you have to say about your car. I'm more interested in your sway bar than I probably am in remembering your name and not more interested. It's just something wired that way. <laughs> Hey, let me ask you this. Pick your pick your memory here. Was Robbie on your pit box at Road Atlanta in the Waffle House car? He was. We kept that really quiet because he was really paranoid that since we were running a Volkswagen, other manufacturers he drove for were going to be mad. Wow. So we still beat you. He had a, at the time we didn't know you had a future IMSA star in your pit box. Yeah. That yeah. makes it all the better for me. <laughs> I'm good. I'm, I'm I'm good here, guys. <laughs> um, Rick, before we wrap everything up, uh, anything you want to jump in? No, I just want to thank uh, Mr. Pinkerton for showing up tonight and sharing his wisdom with us. Uh, so much that that our audience can learn uh, from some of the basic coaching that he shared and, and some excellent stories. I do want to hear about wrenching on an indie car, though. That that's got to be. Uh, I know it's not driving one, but yeah. that's got to be a world class experience. Yeah, I, I can give you a brief summary on that and the fact that that deal came together for me kind of interning with Brian Herta's Indy Lights team out here through a connection that I had uh, out here at Barber just for the tests. And again, like I said, at the time I was 17 when I first started wrenching on the Indy Lights car. And like, I didn't think I was going to work on it. It was just like, hey, I'm going to come hang out and be like the gopher. I'll polish wheels and tires and whatever and just help out and hang out trying to just learn. Um, and then I always, and then it was always like, oh, here's a wrench. Work on this. Um, and then I got to Indy. Uh, they, after the barber race, they're like, "Hey, you want to come do the Indy 500?" And I was like, "Sure, of course, I want to come do the Indy 500." Um, and I came up there again thinking I was going to be like tire gopher, which I ended up being during the race. But I thought I was only going to be the tire gopher, like helping the truckie out and like going and getting lunch and running parts to the shop. And I was going to be it. Like, who in their right mind is going to let an 18-year-old that just took his last high school English exam and then drove to Indianapolis um, <laughs> wrench on an Indy car? Uh, who had a Formula V that didn't know what a torque wrench was four years ago? Um, not even four years ago, three years ago at that point. Um, and so I showed up to the track and Jack Hawksworth was driving for him at the time and, um, had a, he had a crash. I actually missed the first day of practice. I was taking that last high school exam and, um, I was driving up there and they were like, yeah, they're like, well, Jack crashed. We're working in the car now. Um, we're going to have you run by the shop and fill out some paperwork and pick up some parts and then go by the IndyCar credential office, get your credential and then come into the speedway and bring it, bring everything to the garage. And I, again, thought nothing's going to happen. And I get there and they're like, well, the other mechanics are flying in. They won't be here to the end of the week. They're like, but there's a toolbox from one of them. Uh, you can use those tools. And they just handed me a crate of parts. And it was like, I think it was brake rotors and turbo assemblies. They're like, take the broken stuff off of these and throw it away and take the good stuff that's salvageable off and put it on the new parts. And I was like terrified and petrified. And then spent the whole first day that I was at the, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I'd never been there before. Whole first day on the back row of Gasoline Alley in a garage with the door shut, working on it, like putting a car back together, help, help the regular mechanics get it back together. And then the first ever laps I got to witness of a car that I'd worked on go around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was doing some uh, install laps and recon laps after we put this thing back together. Um, and it worked, but it was really like terrifying when, 
you work on your own like track car and you're like i really hope i got this right because this is going to go like over 100 miles per hour when you're putting a brake road together and you go this thing's going to go 240 miles per hour it, you're like I, i'm getting knots in my stomach thinking about it it's there's a lot of responsibility there with those mechanics it's one thing you don't think about when you're walking around the paddock you're like these guys literally have the life of the drivers and potentially spectators in their hands um but it was it was a really cool experience i mean 2014 was the last year that jim neighbors sang back home again in indiana um it was a year where qualifying speeds were starting to go up because it was the last year of the original dw12 bodywork before they went to the crazy manufacturer aero kits um and it was just yeah it that's a that's a race where if you've never been to an Indy 500 and you consider yourself a race fan, figure out a way to get there and just go. Even if you're not someone that thinks, even if you're not a good spectator, just go. Like, don't watch it on TV this year. Find a way to get a ticket and go to this year's race. Awesome. Well, Mr. Pinkerton, I like the, like Rick. I want to thank you for uh, taking an hour out of your at night and, and talking with us. You know, it's really really cool to watch you kind of progress up through the years since I've known you. Just you know, in amateur racing and and watching things work out for you. Um, for those of you guys at home, um, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Andrew. But um, you know, if you're if you're like a red group guy and you want to talk about getting some coaching, um, how do they reach out to you? Um, so I mean, obviously, I'm on social media at, at Racer Pinky. Um, can DM me on Instagram or you can go to my website, racerpinky.com. And I think I've got my, my, I don't know if I have a phone number on there or not, but if I've, if I've definitely got a contact form or my email, shoot me an email or contact me through the website. Um, or like I said, through social media channels, I'm definitely always open to working with whoever um, we can definitely work on. I think just kind of for, for the audience here, if we're working on track days, um, just to be fair to everybody, I think um, probably a group coaching deal would be the best. So if it's you and a couple of buddies, maybe up to probably, three or four, three or four people, I can work with you in a group and, and share the cost of getting me out there. Um, just because it's definitely, uh, I mean, just, just to be, just to be completely blunt, since we've been honest this whole time, it's going to be at least a thousand dollars a day for a private coach. That's going to be good with data. Um, but if you think about the cost of what does a new set of tires cost you, or if you're using slicks, what does a new set of racing slicks cost you? Um, and how much performance does it give you? We can probably get more than that out of a day of coaching. And it'll be a heck of a lot more repeatable. Yes, that, that's for sure. Um, so that, that's that's the information out there. Like I said, we're definitely open to a group, uh, group splitting it up um, and working with. I'm, I'm always happy to work with more drivers and make sure everyone's having fun and going faster. That's that's what we're trying to do at the end of the day, right? That's right. Well, um, you know, we got a couple of event dates out at Barber this year. So, Angel, we'd love to see you come out to a Jay's little venue if just to hang out and, you know, meet and greet some of the people. Uh, my last question is, when are we driving again? You know, I know I'm the, the slow amateur guy, but, uh, you know, I can still throw down in a, in a champ car race. Like so we need to figure out when, when can we race again? I don't know. Like I said, the last two champ car races I did this past year were completely by accident. It was one of those deals of showing up to the racetrack with my helmet and thinking no one's going to give me a ride. And the first team I talked to went, you got, you got your gear? I was like, yeah. They're like, well, you're getting it on the next pit stop. I was like, when's that? They were like 45 minutes. I was like, do you want to know my background? They're like, nope, just get in. Um, and we, we won on Sunday at Barber um, by three laps. So that was fun. Um, I don't know. Whenever there's a car, I mean, I, I'm, like I said, I'm always game to, I'm typically game to jump in for, for whatever, whenever, especially if I've got a free weekend, um, which those are coming fewer and further between. But definitely towards the end of the year, once we get back into the fall, that's when things slow down. Gotcha. Well, I will be actually, I'll be at your house in two weeks uh, with WRL at back at Barber. So if I see you out there, make sure you wave as you, uh, as you go by. But uh, other than that, I guess that will conclude this episode. Andrew, thank you again for your time. Rick, uh, thanks again for co-hosting this with me. And uh, that will conclude episode, I guess it's 19. Yeah, thank you guys Have so night, much. Guys.